Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson for AFI Top 100 List Countdown, number 74, Silence of the Lambs. I wish I could stick around and do this podcast with you, Oscar, but uh, I'm having an old friend for dinner. I want to start this podcast by saying Silence of the Lambs is a fucking incredible title. Truly. It's just amazing, evocative, like foreboding, great title. Sets the tone right away. A hell of a lot better than the sequel, which just comes straight out with Hannibal. Just Front Street, right? There's nothing nuanced about that at all. Just like, oh, you like Hannibal Lecter? Okay, we're just going to call it Hannibal. Yeah, it's not Yeah, not a great title. Like Red uh, Dragon. Was, Red Dragon's kind of fun. That's evocative. I mean, that was the name of the book, though, right? Hannibal? It was. Oh, yeah, I yeah. I'm not, I'm not blaming Ridley Scott or, or uh, Steve Zalian. Or I'm blaming um, Thomas Harris. Like, come on, man. <laughs> You're better than this. Phoned you, it in. Yeah, but. you made it. You know, you wrote a book with an incredible title, "The Silence of the Lambs." I I bet it helps sales, though. I mean, at the yeah, at the airport fair. airport bookstore, just says Hannibal in big fucking red letters. Plus, wasn't that kind of what? Did wasn't Hannibal for pretty much everybody involved? I can't believe we're starting with Hannibal and working backwards. Wasn't Hannibal kind of for everybody involved? Just sort of a cash grab, even for Thomas Harris. Definitely a cash grab, especially for Thomas Harris. Yeah, it's interesting. We don't want to date this, but there's been some talk out there that. A new movie coming out uh, has a chance to repeat for the first time ever what Silence of the Lambs did yes. in uh, 1991, uh, which which is winning all five major categories at the Academy Awards. And, you know, I, I feel like that's the first line that people lead with when talking about Silence of the Lambs these days is just how well it did at the Academy Awards, which sort of undermines just uh, the quality of this movie in general, right? I mean, Ben Ben mentioned this briefly on our uh, In the Heat of the Night conversation, but uh, yeah, you, you almost can't discuss its, its relevance and its lasting cultural legacy without talking about the fact that it was this big critical success that won the big five Oscars and did so over a year after it even came out. Yeah, I mean, this is 27 years ago, and that was a time where you could roll a movie out in February, and it could be kind of a sleeper, you know, you could build word of mouth over the course of six, or I think this movie was in the theater for like eight months. Yeah. Right? And then slowly but surely, you could just kind of build this thing. Nowadays, you try and roll it out as late as you possibly can, so it's still part of the conversation by February or March, right? Yeah, time went a lot slower back then, you know? The news, <laughs> the news cycle wasn't as rampant. And, uh, you know, where did we get our entertainment news? It was Entertainment Tonight. It was Entertainment Weekly. It was, and that was about it, right? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, three films have the distinction of, of sweeping the big five. In the, uh, it happened one night, 1934. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975. And then The Silence of the Lambs in 1991. It has not happened since. But, yes, hold your breath and see if uh, the third remake of, uh, of A Star is Born can break that streak. Spoiler alert, it's not going to. There's no way. <laughs> it's it's got a chance, man. Don't 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 count Mr. Cooper out. It, it's crazy to me how this movie has sort of like maintained that same amount of cultural relevant, relevance considering that on paper it looks like a pretty standard like you said airport thriller adaptation pot boiler um serial killer thriller. I mean just watching it again the other day, so much of it does feel kind of perfunctory and kind of sort of standard. Yeah, but it has a couple elements in it that really, really transcend and are just absolutely like kind of groundbreaking and still resonate 27 years later. Yeah, on a very general level, um, this movie doesn't make any of the mistakes that sort of the perfunctory types of movies that we're talking about 
often make. I mean, there's a there's a lack of sort of plot contrivances, really. Um, there aren't really false notes. There's not sort of blatant bullshit exposition. There's no... The, the characters that could be cliches aren't really cliches. You know, the acting is obviously top-notch. Jonathan Demme's directing style is fucking terrific. I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward at times, but really suspenseful and really visually arresting uh, throughout. And, uh, you know, this is as taut of a thriller, of a movie, of a horror film as you're going to see. I mean, there's there's no there's no fat on the bone here. I mean, it's it's all it's all lean meat, Matt. Yeah, you use the terms thriller and horror, so uh, we might as well get into that immediately. Is this movie a thriller or is it a horror film? Because I think that's that's been a question since 1991. Where does this movie, which genre is this movie beholden to? Does it have to be one, Matt? Not necessarily, but I, I personally feel pretty strongly about one and not so strongly about the other. Um, yeah, I think horror movie is, is more apt um, just because it's interesting. I think thriller. You think thriller? Okay. I do. I was just reading a Reddit thread the other day that was, uh, it was just an, a question being asked. He's like, someone's like, what are some really amazing whodunit movies, you know? And I forget what the examples were made. And one of the top responses was Silence of the Lambs. And then a bunch of people responding like, the fuck are you talking about? There's no whodunit to this. Like, we, we know who Jamie Gum is from the beginning. We know who Buffalo Bill is from the beginning. We, we, we know what Hannibal Lecter wants. And, we, I mean, there's no real twists in this movie, um, except for kind of at the end. It's a little faint by Jonathan Demme, uh, where, you know, Jodie Foster... Shows up at uh, Buffalo Bill's door, and the uh, SWAT team shows up at uh, a different door. Uh, but besides yeah. that, I mean, the the sort of you know the hallmarks of a thriller where it's like you're not sure who did it or how they're going to catch it or whatever. Like that's not really there. So why do you say thriller, man? Uh, because it just I just have a hard time fitting this into a a horror film container. It just to me doesn't feel tonally like that's necessarily what Demi's going for I mean there are horrific moments to be sure but a lot of people talk about this as being you know the only horror film that ever won best picture one of the greatest horror films of all time falling into the same category as The Exorcist and The Shining and Psycho and Halloween or whatever all of which I think fit really neatly into the horror film categorization whereas to me this is this is the preeminent template for the psychological thriller uh, that revolved around trying to catch a serial killer that became so in vogue in the 90s, right? Yeah. Like, for better or for worse, this gave birth to a lot of really, really bad imitators the same way that Pulp Fiction birthed a thousand chatty criminal uh, offshoots. Sure. And so, I don't know, to me, it just it never feels it never feels like it crosses over that line into horror realms to me it's just it's always just the you know the fbi profiler platonic ideal of what i consider to be a psychological thriller but that's it's just one man's opinion i don't begrudge people who think that it's uh it's strictly horror and like you said it doesn't have to fall it doesn't have to be all one or all i just think it's an interesting conversation starter yeah i'm yeah i'm not concerned about putting it into a bucket although i think you're right is that people are considering i mean i just saw a list the other day of best horror movies from every year for the last like 25 years and they put this one for 91 and yeah it's not it wouldn't be a typical horror film but yeah i'm not concerned with with titles <laughs> we're uh, i mean according to wikipedia this is a 1991 american horror dash thriller film everybody's right um so this movie came out when we were too young to see it oh yeah as a matter of fact like 
when when the os the the year i guess it would have been february of 92 when promos would come up featuring hannibal lecter like when there'd be like teasers like coming up later tonight uh, will sansa lambs win best picture yeah my parents would like turn the tv off because they were so <laughs> horrified my mom had read the book and she was just like so horrified by the idea of the movie that she would just like keep me from seeing any not that they were going to show you know hannibal lecter um eating somebody's face in yeah. a promo for the Oscars, but just if she saw him come up on screen, she would just immediately turn it off to make sure that I wasn't traumatized by Hannibal Lecter. We would have been eight, eight years old, <laughs> seven or eight years old. Yeah, pretty young. Definitely too young to see this in the theater. Yeah, and I don't remember when exactly I first saw it, but I do remember it was one of those touchstone movies that I would keep asking, like, is it time yet? Is it time yet? Every time we went to <laughs> Blockbuster, you know, it was the same thing as like a. I would always see this on the shelf. I'd always see like Major League on the shelf. I think I got to see that. <laughs> That's a bizarre double feature. But I, I, you know, I do remember seeing it. I had to have been 12, 13, 14 when I finally got to see it. I do remember thinking that, holy shit, it lived up to the hype. <laughs> and uh, it was as sort of disturbing and well done and as good of a movie as, as, as you could have hoped for given the fact that it was it was so hyped up and so so much in the zeitgeist and really the character Hannibal Lecter and the, the movie itself has like you said maintained you know in, in the world forever I mean this is not this is not a forgotten movie and this is still a movie that everyone knows you know what 27 years later the overwhelming acclaim and affection for this movie is kind of unprecedented like I don't think I've ever talked to someone who has who has seen the film who doesn't who doesn't appreciate it. Like you never hear about anybody being like, yeah, it's a little dated or, uh, you know, I liked it in 91, but have you watched it recently? Or, you know, it's one of the most underrated best picture. I mean, everybody just sort of agrees like, oh yeah, that's a masterpiece. We can all agree. Everybody loves it. Uh, moving on. For almost every movie, I mean, we've talked about this Forrest Gump, we've talked about this a lot of movies. There is like a cottage subculture of, of hot takery <laughs> that there are people like, well, this, well, actually this movie isn't good, but you're right. That, that does not exist with this movie, I mean, do you have any theories? Hot takes. Hot takes, or do you have any any reasons why that exists except for it's just a really good movie? No, as a matter of fact, I was I was hoping to get some insight from you about that because I have a lot of respect for the movie. I think it holds up awfully well, and it's actually a movie I revisit pretty darn often considering how disturbing so much of it is. I, I find this movie to be strangely calming, <laughs> I tend to, I mean, maybe I don't necessarily sit down and watch the entire thing all the way through before going to sleep, but I have found myself like, if I can't sleep or whatever, maybe just like sitting down and watching some of the interrogation, you know, just hearing Lecter and Clarice whisper to each other through, you know, jail cell bars or whatever. I don't know. I, I find it, it kind of has an ASMR effect on me for some reason. <laughs> well, you might want to go talk to somebody about that. Man. <laughs> I, I don't know. There's just like something about Demi's approach in terms of how intimate he makes those scenes. Oh, and that God. really is like the lifeblood of this movie is that relationship and his method in terms of how he constructs those those sequences. And, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson has famously yeah. said that he considers uh, Jonathan Demi the, the greatest close-up artist, the greatest close-up filmmaker of all time. He says that Jonathan Demi's close-ups are better than any other, any other filmmaker's close-ups. Yeah, I remember uh, I saw a quote you know before this podcast and someone asked Paul Thomas Anderson what his whose three biggest, you know, uh, inspirations are in the directing world, and he said Jonathan Demi, Jonathan Demi, Jonathan Demi. <laughs> yeah, which, which is, I mean, super interesting. But you know, the the close ups are throughout the movie, yeah, so intimate and so just well done. You know, I, I think this movie endures 
partially because it's so you know I mentioned this before, but it's so clean. Like it, it, there's there's no false notes throughout. It's it, it just logically makes sense scene to scene, and the way the plot unfolds is really well done. Even if it is sort of narratively you know not typical, you know the the second act climax is. Hannibal Lecter escaping and then he sort of disappears until the very final scene which is interesting because he's the sort of the main draw supposedly for this movie but you know I think it has endured because it is pretty unassailable I mean it's it's like what is there to nitpick about this movie Matt I mean I don't really have any I mean again there's nothing really like sexy or um there's no big bombastic sequences necessarily with the exception maybe of of Lecter escaping from prison but even that is kind of subdued in, in in terms of Demi's approach. I don't think he, the, so, the, the guard hanging <laughs> all right. from, 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 <laughs> from the You cage. don't find that to be subdued. All right. That might be a little bit big, um, but I presume completely in line with uh, with Harris's text. Yeah, I don't know. I, I can't think of any scenes in the film that feel out of place or any uh, storytelling decisions that don't track. You know, like you said, everything clicks perfectly into place. Everything fits together. Tonally, it's completely consistent which is a very difficult thing to do with the subject matter mm-hmm. and all the performances are top-notch especially the especially foster and hopkins obviously who both won very deserved oscars for this um i don't know I, I find this movie to be pretty pretty unprecedented i don't really have anything to compare it to in terms of how successful it is at everything it attempts maybe what it's attempting is more modest you know, then your Shawshank Redemptions or your All the President's Men's or, I don't know, Apartments. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it only seems modest because it's so perfect, right? Like, Yeah, it makes it look easy. Maybe that's maybe that's Demi's biggest um, gift is to make it look kind of easy. Like you said, make it look so smooth. Um, you watch those aforementioned close-ups and you realize how rare it is to see close-ups where a character is, is addressing the camera, where the character is making eye contact with the lens, right? Yeah, yeah. You almost never see somebody looking right down the barrel of the lens. It's There's an intimacy there, and there's a, almost a breaking of the fourth wall that most directors don't have the confidence to do. And uh, and he puts it he puts it right out there from very early on in the film. I'll have the actors talking right into the camera from the, I think, the very first conversation between Jodie Foster and Scott Glenn. They look right smack dab into that lens. And, it, it, you know, like you... It's a little off-putting, almost, right? Oh yeah. It's like, oh Jesus, I'm not, I'm not used to having Scott Glenn look, Scott Glenn look directly, address me directly like that, and then to have somebody like Lecter look at you like that, and especially once he, you know, he tilts the camera up a little bit, and you get, you know, Lecter looking up uh, at the lens, very, uh, very kind of uh, Jack Nicholson in Shine in The Shining, if you will. Oh yeah, and that one shot where the the camera's pointing up and he's just slashing down at the at the guard is one of the most yeah. harrowing things you'll ever you'll ever witness, and you know. Demi deserves all the credit in the world. Um, you know, he doesn't do anything overly splashy or overly stylized. Uh, he restrains himself, and he has all these amazing shots. Like, it's well-worn territory, but I think you have to give credit, <laughs> all the credit in the world, to Hopkins for inhabiting this character to a degree, unlike we, you know, something we haven't really seen before. And he's makes a lot of decisions, and it <laughs> it all it all works to incredible effect and he i mean this this is one of the greatest acting performances you'll ever see right he tiptoes right up to the edge he tiptoes right up Mm -hmm. to that line of going over that you know of chewing the scenery and that's something he had done a lot in his career up to that point i mean i think that when hopkins was cast in this role he you know he wasn't necessarily a big movie star and he kind of had a reputation for going over the top 
you know, on stage and on screen. So the fact that he finds this middle ground there where he can still chew the scenery literally literally and figuratively and yet <laughs> never allow himself to go completely uh, off the rails is obviously a testament to his talent and uh, and probably a testament to Demi's ability to like keep him right there where he needed to be in order to keep this character from becoming a cartoon. Something it would eventually become. Not necessarily Hopkins' fault, but like when you have a character that that's that good, that's that interesting, that that that's that charismatic, you obviously run the risk of it just getting fucked out, right? Yeah. Too many films, too many iterations, too many. You know, going back to that well too many times between Red Dragon and the eventual show, which I hear is actually pretty decent. Never watched it myself. Yeah. Um, it kind of the character kind of just becomes a cartoon. Yeah. But in but you have to when you watch this movie, you have to like put yourself back in that place where. People in 1991 either weren't familiar with it or only knew Brian Cox's interpretation from Manhunter, right? Yes, absolutely. Which is a much different... I mean, this movie is technically a sequel to Manhunter because Manhunter is based on Red Dragon, and I guess it's supposed to take place in the same universe, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they really care. I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's supposed to be a standalone. You know, yeah. Manhunter wasn't a big hit, and I'd say the vast, vast majority of people who saw this movie weren't familiar with that movie. Yeah, Red Dragon, the the Ratner Red Dragon, is more of a direct sequel to Silence of the Lambs than Manhunter is a prequel to Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, I'll put it put it that way. God, going from Demi to fucking Brett Ratner, Ratner such, a, <laughs> such a joke um yeah I mean you know so Hopkins amazing obviously uh and Jodie Foster's characterization is almost equally as terrific I mean just the 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 combination of naivete and vulnerability with just absolute confidence and assertiveness is is fantastic and yeah she deserved her award just as much as as Hopkins did his and just them going toe to toe could a lot of a lot of actors could have been bulldozed by by Hopkins here and she absolutely was not yeah I agree she completely holds her own uh not the first choice for this role apparently Michelle Pfeiffer was supposed to play this role I love Michelle Pfeiffer that would not have been as good no I agree I mean this really in a lot of ways might be the role Jodie Foster was was born to play with all due respect to the taxi driver and the accused yeah um, she really is. She really is tremendous in this movie, and and she needs to be because you have to be able to stand up to this guy. And apparently, Hopkins was very playful, or maybe that's the wrong word. Maybe very kind of vindictive at the beginning in terms of like making fun of her accent or really like putting her back on her heels. Apparently, playing a lot of mind games with her on set. Oh. Whether that was his decision or whether Demi encouraged him to do that. Apparently, for the first couple days of, or at least the first couple um, times they were on set together, uh, he was messing with messing with her head a lot. Huh, Which I guess sounds consistent with his characterization. Also, I want to give a shout out to uh, Ted Levine for, uh, for for being. I mean, that is he goes also, for it. He really goes for it, and it's a uh, it's a it's an extremely odd, atypical type of serial killer. You know the 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 transvestite you know adjacent thing that that they're doing here. You know that was maybe my one worry going in was like, oh, how is this going to play in sort of this era? But you know they were pretty. They were pretty good about it. None of it came off as sort of, you know, reductive or offensive in any way. I mean, they really, it's a pretty complex mental thing going on with this guy. And it, like I said, it, it tracks the whole thing. The whole thing works. It's not your traditional whodunit because you know exactly who done it from pretty early on. It's not about who, it's about can we get there in time before he uh, skins again, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, we see him uh, kidnap Catherine Martin 20 minutes into the movie. Something like that, yeah. 25 minutes into the movie, something like that. You know exactly who he is. And from there on, it's just about watching watching his process and him starving this girl and whether 
Jodie Foster is going to get there in time. And I mean, the implication is that Anthony Hopkins knows who he is from the beginning, right? Yeah. I mean, he knows who he, like from the very first time Jodie Foster meets him, he could very, he could just tell her his name right there, right? Or at least he suspects that he knows who it is. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. To me, that's the biggest kind of narrative uh, leap that the movie, like that's the most convenient aspect of the narrative, I think. Mm-hmm. It's not a deal breaker, but the more I kind of think about it and and, and sort of stew on it, the more convenient that sounds. Because he wasn't a patient, right? He was like a, a patient adjacent or something like that. Or they had met one time, but he, he, you know, he was in therapy, but he wasn't Lecter's patient. Isn't that the deal? Yeah, he wasn't Lecter's patient, but the first, yeah, Buffalo Bill's boyfriend at the time was was the patient, right? Got it. Yeah. So by that logic, it's it's kind of presupposing that like all serial killers kind of run in the same social circles sure right they all kind of know each other. again these, these are very very minor nitpicks um they're not deal breakers it's just that's kind of where my brain goes once you realize that like Lecter kind of knows the score from the very beginning but that's that's the point he's he's able you know he's holding the card so he can play with you know he can play the quid pro quo game with Clarice for the run of the film well and also so he can sort of engineer his escape you know yes, I mean? that's, the, that's the whole point. I want to talk about that for a second because it's so insane and outrageous. But it's it, you know, you watch that escape and how he manufactures it, and it makes sense. Like I feel like that would work. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm assuming we have to give most of that. I mean, the way Demi handles it is is incredibly workmanlike. But I guess you have to give credit to Thomas Harris for engineering that because I presume that's consistent with what how it happens in the book. And you get and Chris Isaac and the SWAT team show up and. Uh, all the stuff in the in the elevator shaft, and yeah, by the time you get to that ambulance, it's just such a beautiful reveal, and it really is still so effective. Like I can only imagine how that must have affected audiences in 1991, because it still gets me every time. I, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. The fact that the movie can sustain after that is extremely impressive in and of itself, because you lose you know you lose the most dynamic character in your movie, and you're still thrilling to the end. And just the 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 final showdown scene is extremely well choreographed and, and, and thrilling and suspenseful and pretty fucking scary. I think that a lot of the horror stuff comes from that. Sure. Um, and, you know, James Gum's lair is, is, is one of the, one <laughs> of the most... nightmare fuel. Yeah, it is absolutely nightmare fuel. You know, it's not, it's not really all that necessary to the plot. I mean, it is a big clue that they figure out. I, I, I guess it is sort of the linchpin clue. But all the but the moth stuff is so unsettling and such yeah. a weird, bizarre trait of this movie. But it but it, it works so well in, in in its creepiness and just otherworldliness. I mean, we talked about it last week uh, when we were discussing. You know, we've had two uh, basically crime thrillers in a row, murder mysteries, if you will, with uh, in the heat of the night. And I, you know, we mentioned that that film is pretty simple in terms of sort of like structure and conception. What makes it special is all the you know the racial implications of the way Jewison handles it and and Poitier and Steiger's uh, relationship and performances and there's just uh, there's all these things that just sort of like raise the material to the next level that is not necessarily there on the page or at least in you know in terms of like just the conceit of it all yeah and this to me is is exactly the same scenario where it's just like there's not necessarily really anything that special or spectacular about this kind of story but everyone involved and the strength of the performances and the way Demi chooses to handle it and the things he chooses to focus on and just how consistently he makes these 
proper direct, you know, like making the right directorial choice every time he's faced with something that could just so easily be boilerplate, that just could so easily be um, disposable. He continues to make decisions that just make it more and more interesting and raise the stakes. Yeah. So like this is really a movie that just rises to the occasion in a way I wouldn't have expected this type of thriller to in a way that no other thriller sort of of this ilk really has in the last 27 years, right? Like, what would you compare this to? What what lives up to, what what is the heir apparent to, uh, to Silence of the Lambs? Zodiac? Seven. Okay, seven. I'll buy that. I had the right director in the wrong movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's the only one that I feel like really pulls off everything and and uh, has a has a similar, you know, similar bent to it. That was one of the, you know, so-called knockoffs from this movie that actually succeeds. I mean, so there's so many shitty serial killer movies over the last 20, 25 years. Um, and that's in no small part to, to Silence of the Lambs and trying to live up to it. But, you know, it's, the more we talk about it, we're kind of talking about more or less perfect movie. and a, peer, uh, a peerless film, yeah. I guess this comes down to our question that we always ask. But given that we could find almost no fault in this film... <laughs> feel like it maybe should be higher on the list man it was it, it dropped nine spots from the last version of the list and yeah i'm with you i don't know if i would put it at uh, 65 necessarily but I, I i would entertain raising it a little bit higher one of the most important films to come out of the 90s yeah one of the best i mean it'd be interesting to sort of do our list of our the top movies of the 90s i mean i'm sure this would rank fairly high yeah it's got to be top 10 at least it's weird because it's in a genre that we don't typically ascribe to like the uh you know, prestige, prestige movies. Yeah. So it's it's, yeah. it's it almost makes it pretty hard to rank uh, alongside other movies, right? Like almost makes it more impressive in how it transcends sort yeah. of like the limitations of a genre. What's uh, what's your favorite scene? Oh man, I so the first showdown between uh, Clarice and, and Lecter is is really incredible and it sets the tone and it, it's uh, it's perfect, uh, but fucking adore the whole escape sequence from the hotel and and just his his diabolical plan and how it all plays out i think i think that's my favorite sequence in the movie and just ending with uh you know in the ambulance it's yeah it's a centerpiece for sure my favorite is um is the epilogue (laughs) it's it's the which i which i referenced at the beginning of this conversation it's it's the trump card like it's really what the movie is holding one final card and it just fucking drops it right there at the end and and wins um (laughs) it's it's everything i mean it's just it's everything like it understands the playfulness like the ability for one of the scariest cinematic, you know, one of the scariest characters in the history of, of villains to come along, escape, and yet we still not only want to hear from that character, we're actually kind of rooting for him to get out there in the world, right? Like, <laughs> I know. It's, it's crazy that the movie can can do that to you, and it's a testament to Harris and Demi and Anthony Hopkins' performance that you're horrified by the prospect of this that he's out there somewhere and yet you're still kind of rooting for him yeah and that was a less i think hannibal and red drag and the red dragon remake learned the wrong lessons from that wait you don't think ray leota's brain is the, <laughs> the same as- but i get it i i get I, I i understand why they're like let's fucking capitalize on this man everybody loves this character yeah and and the um and the end the last the epilogue really really reinforces that like you love this character so here you go and it's it's everything like I, I revisit that I revisit that epilogue all the time because between that <laughs> between just the tone of Hopkins voice you know terrified Jodie Foster you know speaking into an empty telephone and then Howard Shore's 
incredible the twinkle of howard howard shore's score uh-huh. as hopkins walks away while the um you know and, and i love movies that just completely change the scenery in the epilogue like the fact that it's taken place all on the eastern seaboard it's been rainy and gray and cold and snowy and you've been in all like these fucking dank jail cells and in quantico and you know you feel like you've been um the weight of the world and the clouds and the trees have just been pressing down on you and all of a sudden we're in this like crazy tropical environment and you know bermuda somewhere and the wind is whistling through the palm trees as he walks off into the distance with this lovely linen suit and it's beautiful head of hair yeah oh that incredible yeah it's (laughs) i i think it's one of my favorite i think it's one of my one of the greatest cinematic endings of all time. It's one of my absolute favorites. I can't get enough of that. Matt, I think this has been maybe our least contentious <laughs> podcast ever. It's hard to disagree on anything here. It's true. I know. And I don't I don't consider myself a Sons of the Lamb super fan. You're, it's it's hard to argue with. It's really hard to argue with. And I feel like it's, it's kind of unanimous. <laughs> it is. I mean, if you disagree with us, if you have thoughts uh, in the, uh, you know, sort of interrogative, um, by all means, uh, shoot us an email at wlmpodcast at gmail.com or drop something on our Facebook site slash wlmpodcast. Get involved in the conversation as we work our way through this list. I will say I, I read, I went to Rotten Tomatoes and read all of the bad reviews and there's like five or six of them. Including Siskel, right? Didn't Siskel hate this movie? Yeah, well, the people who disliked this movie were all on the same page and they all just couldn't get over how sort of insidious and dark like everyone agreed that it's really well done and it's incredibly well acted and plotted and the story is great but it was just too dark and like the message of you know hannibal winning and all that shit uh was too much for them i i guess i guess that's fair if you can't get over that there's there's nothing about the way this movie's made to uh to to pick nits with so yeah i'm just so impressed by the execution uh pun intended yeah, I, I, it's weird. I don't find my, like I mentioned before how sometimes I'll fall asleep to this movie, which I agree sounds kind of weird, but it's it's like the whole Requiem for a Dream thing. You know, people always talk about how they saw Requiem for a Dream once. They'll never watch it again because it's just too depressing. It's too harrowing. It's too dark for them. Whereas I revisit that movie all the time because I'm so overwhelmed by Aronofsky's, Aronofsky's technique. Like I just I find myself getting like jazzed by that movie because I'm just like, God, look at this fucking guy. Look at this filmmaker firing in all <laughs> cylinders and coming into his own yeah. in only his second movie. Silence of the Lambs kind of makes me feel the same way. And Demi, Demi had such an interesting career. He's un- passed away a few years ago, unfortunately. But if you just look at his trajectory from Stop Making Sense, which is maybe the greatest concert film of all time. I was just about to bring that saying up. Saying a lot. He's made the two best movies in different genres, probably. Yeah, probably. I mean, I re- I revisited Scorsese's The Last Waltz the other day, and uh, it's a very good concert film. But Stop Making Sense is just yeah. I I, I just rewatched Stop Making Sense, and uh, God, that's the fucking best movie. It's the gold standard. Yeah. Um, through weird stuff, you know, something wild, Married to the Mob, and then he does, um, you know, he does Philadelphia right after this, which is which is really a fascinating movie in its own right. And then late in his career, does things like uh, Rachel Getting Married, which yeah. I think might be his second. Well, I guess third greatest film maybe after talk stop making sense but it's certainly his last great movie yeah i yeah. would say that movie is that really movie is great too almost a masterpiece interesting career and yeah i think it says a lot like we always think of paul thomas anderson as being the heir apparent to altman or scorsese or nowadays even kubrick maybe but it says a lot that uh, demi is is his hero i mean it, it really it kind of legitimizes demi in a way that i don't think he ever really experienced while he was alive <laughs> 
That's true. And, you know, he sort of disappears into his movies, which is, you know, not, not the way to, to get noticed as an auteur, right? But Sure. Yeah, all right. Silence of the Lambs, Matt. That's uh, number 74. Uh, number 73 coming up next, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That'll be fun. We're going back out west again. We were in uh, with The Wild Bunch pretty recently, another film from 1969, and now we're heading back out there with George Roy Hill, Robert Redford, and Paul Newman. I'm looking forward to it. All right, well, until next time, this has been We Like Movies. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye.